It is Wednesday, November 8th, and we are back with a brand new episode of the MAD Podcast. Conversations with leaders from across the machine learning, AI, and data landscape with Matt Turk, partner at FirstMark Capital. Today, we have the pleasure of chatting with Sharon Zhu, CEO of Lamini, an LLM platform for the enterprise. Matt and Sharon go over the battle between prompting and fine-tuning, how the Lamini platform enables fine-tuning to be done 1 billion times faster, and their recently announced LLM Superstation in partnership with AMD. As always, if you're liking the show, you're going to want to hit that follow button so you'll be the first to know when new episodes are released each week. And now without further ado, here are Sharon and Matt. Sharon, welcome to uh, the MAP podcast. You are the co-founder and CEO of Lamini.ai, uh, the leading enterprise LLM platform for fine-tuning. Uh, and um, we are going to talk about uh, what, what that means. Um, so welcome, excited to have you. Been looking forward to the conversation. Uh, you know, as tends to be the case with the things, and uh, you and I were just chatting a second ago before starting to record, I'd, I'd love to... Uh, start with your story, uh, including your very impressive educational background. I, among other things, I, I read that um, at Harvard, uh, you were the first person to do a joint degree in classics and uh, computer science. Uh, so how, do, how does something like this happen? <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Um, yeah, I can give a little bit of history. I mean, you know, actually, most recently, I was computer science faculty at Stanford, uh, leading a research group in generative AI, generative models, um, also uh, teaching there. I teach actually uh, about a quarter million students and professionals online on Coursera um, in generative AI, um, the most recent course being fine-tuning LLMs using Lamini. Um, and uh, I did my PhD at Stanford in generative models, generative AI. I've been doing this for almost um, a decade. But before my PhD, I uh, was actually a product manager at Google, um, so machine learning product manager on Google Cloud. Uh, and I was enamored with product and user experience. And how I become like that classics and computer science person actually comes from a very different background than most people, which is... I started off in literature and loving languages, loving, you know, Latin, ancient Greek, uh, French, as, as we talked about previously. Um, and I, you know, I'm a people person. I love people. Um, I never thought I'd fall in love with a thing, which is a generative model, for example. Um, so I moved into computer science and found it by way of user experience. Um, I actually felt very intimidated working with technology when I grew up. Um, so user experience was like this holy grail of, oh, we can actually design systems to make them not intimidating for other people to use. I want to do that. I want to make it so much easier for people to use um, these systems. Um, so that's that's part of why I'm in technology at all. And of course, um, I fell in love with generative models completely on a whim. I had uh, the joke as I you know, was trying to drop out of the Stanford PhD um, to start a company like Larry and Sergey, 
Um, and I failed to drop out because I just fell in love with generative models because they were so magical. <laughs> um, and uh, and that's that is a joke, but it is genuinely like I told my advisor, PhD advisor Andrew Ang, that day one that I was my plan was to drop out. So it it was genuinely my my true path. Um, so yeah, like bringing together user experience, accessibility, um, making making technology easier to use and access. Plus um, my love of generative models is, is kind of how this company was born. Lam and I was born um, where I think like the future is where everyone should be able to own their own LLMs and, and the path to getting there is democratizing access to actually being able to build it, you know, make it possible for people, for enterprises to be able to build it. Um, and this is especially true in this age where LLMs are, I believe the new IP. So okay. yeah. All right, fascinating. Thanks for sharing. Um, so um, since Lamini is an enterprise platform for fine-tuning LLMs, um, maybe a great place to start would be with um, a little bit of definitions uh, and sort of uh, if you could help us contrast uh, training and pre-training with prompt engineering and then fine tuning and uh, sort of explain what, uh, you know, for, for a broad audience of people um, looking to learn about the space, what, what those things mean and how different they are. Right, of course. Um, so fine tuning is the technology that got from a research project in 2020 called GPT-3 and turned that into ChatGPT, a billion dollar app, right? So that was the technology that made that happen. Um, and what it's doing is it's modifying the large language model to take in data, learn new knowledge from that data, be able to have certain guardrails, like you've probably seen as an AI large language model, I can't answer that question, or I'm a little bit uncertain about that question, um, and, and be able to give more consistent outputs. Uh, and so um, that's the technology behind it. Of course, there are different challenges, happy to chat through what makes it hard. It's very hard. Um, and that's in contrast to prompt engineering, which um, people have been hearing about. Uh, prompt engineering um, is actually something that everyone has been doing for for a long time, before even, I think a decade almost, um, before even large language models came about. I think Google is essentially prompt engineering. When you edit your query to get the results that you want, that's prompt engineering. And so prompt engineering is great when you um, let's say you don't have a lot of data um, and all you want to do is just ask the language model something and be able to actually interact with the language model. So prompt engineering is just a way to interact with the system, whether that be a language model or even a search engine, to be able to um, get different outputs from the system that you would want. Um, and it's very, very good when you don't have a lot of data. Of course, you just don't have examples to necessarily steer it in a certain direction. And it's very, very easy to get started. And that's in contrast to fine tuning where... Um, fine tuning is not as easy to get started. You do need, you know, some technical lift, especially on the data side these days. Um, and but it does work really well when you have a lot of data. Um, and of course, these are not mutually exclusive techniques. Um, you of course do can do prompt engineering on top of a fine-tuned model. ChatGPT, you're obviously doing prompt engineering on ChatGPT, which is a fine-tuned model. Um, and so yeah, that's that's how I would I would think about it um, from those terms. Is that helpful? Okay, great. Yeah, that, that's very helpful. And uh, just uh, to just uh, uh, drive it home completely, training is what what you do. Um, even like before that, so that's the multi, uh, you know, possibly billion dollar uh, effort of uh, just yeah. uh, building the model. And before you do the fine tuning, yes, 
Yes. Oh, yeah. Maybe the stages of what the large language model goes through. So initially, it uh, knows absolutely nothing. It actually can't even produce an English sentence or English words. Um, and uh, what you do is, you know, the pre-training phase, uh, what it's known as is just putting in a ton of data from the internet that's been cleaned, scraped, et cetera, and having it learn from that so that it gets a basic understanding of English knowledge and certain skills. Um, and I would say like language skills, perhaps, um, maybe not English necessarily, it could be a different language or a different domain. Um, and so that's kind of the, what the pre-training phase is known as. And that is really expensive, cost billions of dollars um, to develop, especially different iterations of it. Um, and that's kind of what's known as those different base models, like GPT-3 initially, um, uh, Llama, Llama 2, um, some of those that have come out. And then fine-tuning um, makes the model actually be able to interact with different you know, interfaces, essentially. So be able to actually have a chat uh, discussion much more consistently. Okay, great. All right. Uh, so uh, thank you very much for that. So definitions aside, um, just yeah. to on your on your offer to explain why uh, fine tuning is difficult. Like I'd love to. Um, oh yeah. Probably of the challenges. Yes, of course. Um, so to get fine tuning right, uh, it's difficult, and maybe even on like the team side, you can tell that it's um, a big team of top AI engineers at OpenAI, for example, being able to make that actually work. Um, effectively for them. Um, and I, I would kind of break it down into two different categories. Um, one is uh, convergence. So like getting the model to do something called convert, you know, be able to converge is something that's not um, very easy and automatic right now. And it requires machine learning expertise to make it happen. And that's where you tune these things called hyperparameters to make the model nudge towards a place where it actually improves. Um, as opposed to go off the rails completely. And by off the rails, I mean like completely off the rails. It forgets English, et cetera. So um, that's that's one path. Um, I think another thing that's very difficult is we're working with probabilistic systems. Um, so what that means is that uh, you, you might need to do many different iterations. You won't get it on your first shot necessarily, and you might need to train the model several times to be able to get the results that you, you expect and that you would want. Um, and so as a result, efficiency is extremely important. So to be able to do this process very efficiently could actually speed speed it up significantly. Um, and so, you know, to address both of these things at Lamini, we basically offer, you know, different autoconvergence algorithms for, um, for specific different use cases that have been tuned for those use cases. And then for efficiency, we um, have built in parameter efficient fine tuning uh, with different techniques to train slices of the model to very efficiently be able to adapt it to different um different different use cases um and by efficiency i mean you know it's instead of something that might take weeks or even months um that's bringing it down to even like the millisecond level okay great all right so um that's a great segue into uh, the company itself and then the platform and uh, that is going to all the things so when did you start the company Oh, we started the company last year before ChatGPT came out. <laughs> very, uh, very, very young company, and uh, but it seems that you've achieved a lot, and we'll talk about some of this in a in 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 a minute. Um, so it's uh, an enterprise platform for uh, LLM fine tuning. So you, you mentioned a couple of things, but maybe give us like an overall product tour. Um, what where does it start? Where does it end? What what do you currently have? What are you building? Um, yeah, a little bit of a tour would be great. 
Yeah. Okay. A little tour. So, um, <laughs> um, okay. So for the product, uh, exactly what's going, you know, what, what goes into it? So uh, developers use our products to software engineers at different enterprises today. Um, and they're ingesting data. Maybe that's with some of our partners like Snowflake, Databricks, and Nutanix. Um, and they bring um, some of their, you know, either their own models or uh, models on Hugging Face, like any model from Hugging Face, essentially. Uh, the most popular one being Llama 2, um, that series. And they put it into Lamini. And the way they put it into Lamini is through different SDKs that we have um, to easily, you know, be able to... Um, ingest that data in different formats, whether that be raw docs data, you know, just documents, um, raw text data, or uh, if that is something where they want an agent flow, you know, different agent, different operators being able to use different uh, tools or be able to route um, a request from a user to a human or, or an LLM. Um, and inside of the Lamini product, uh, I would kind of break it down in a in a couple components. Uh, so one component is definitely the fine tuning piece, where we have um, this auto convergence piece, this parameter efficient fine tuning efficiency piece. Um, we have uh, retrieval augmented fine tuning, um, which is uh, like merging a bit of the retrieval work out there with fine tuning, and we have RLHF, um, so reinforcement learning with human feedback. Uh, and then on the inference side of things. We have, um, and what inference is, is after you fine-tune the model, or even before you fine-tune the model, you want to be able to run the model um, efficiently. You want it to maybe give out structured output. So we provide interfaces to do that. Um, and then finally, I would say like all of this, this whole system could only run um, efficiently on compute. Uh, so um, we are, you know, compute agnostic. Um, so we actually can run on both. Um, we can run on different VPCs, on NVIDIA chips. And actually, one special thing is we we are the only folks who can actually run um, your language models on top of AMD, uh, AMD GPUs. So that unlocks, what that means is that unlocks um, about 20,000 GPUs readily available today for enterprises to be able to use. And, and to, get, to get a sense of what that means, that means you can train uh, GPT-4. Okay, super great. So to unpack um, some of this, uh, so you mentioned uh, retrieval yeah. augmented fine tuning. Uh, is that is that the same thing, or is that different from uh, retrieval augmented generation? Is that oh yes, in terms or different? Uh, great question. They are two different things. So we we have you know simple SDKs on top of our system for RAG, Retrieval Augmented Generation, which is very common um, these days. Um, retrieval Augmented Fine Tuning is taking that and to the next, le next level and to incorporate that into the training process. So Retrieval Augmented Generation, RAG, uh, which is very commonly used today, is a way to actually get information in um, at inference time um, during prompt engineering, essentially. Um, but for the model to learn new knowledge, retrieval augmented fine tuning is actually incorporating that retrieval technology into the fine tuning process. And something that I'm very, very excited about is these two very big communities kind of bring being moved together. So one community is, you know, the AI large language model community, and the other community has, you know, decades of research on information retrieval. Um, and I'm very excited to, you know, see these two communities really converge to make these models more powerful. Yeah, and just uh, just to play back in in, in layman's term. Oh. Uh, oh yeah, sorry. No, no, no. This is great. Uh, uh, RAG is just basically checking the information, whereas um, retrieval augmented fine tuning would be knowing the information. Is that is that one yes. word? Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
uh, okay, so that's 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 one, but and you can do both. So you can do the the spin yes. tuning, which is a more advanced one, but you can also do rag. So you you integrate with vector databases and that that uh, that part of the world. That... Mm -hmm. Yep, yep, okay, and great. you absolutely should do both <laughs> to get okay, the most yeah. powerful model. Yeah. Uh, so that was one thing uh, that uh, caught my attention. What you said. Uh, another thing is RLHF. Um, so do you want to do you want to um, talk about what that means, uh, both in general, but also in the context of uh, the enterprise on a sort of private basis? Yes. Um, so RLHF stands for Reinforcement Learning with Human Feedback, and that's one of the techniques that I uh, was used by you know OpenAI and of course now um, a few different folks to build ChatGPT. Um, and, and several different models. And uh, what it is at a conceptual level is uh, being able to incorporate human feedback back into the model um, in, you know, basically you can think of it as thumbs up, thumbs down, but it really is like a ranking of, hey, the model said these five things, which which one was the best, um, which one was the least, um, uh, which one was the worst, excuse me. Um, and how do we actually take in that feedback back into the model as another kind of rich data set so the model knows how it should be actually behaving. Um, and so this is a great way to actually incorporate what I view as uh, one usage data. So being able to, as your users use your product, being able to incorporate that back into the model very easily. Um, and then I also take actually quite an opinionated approach to this, which is um, not necessarily, I question the H in RLHF. Um, I don't think it necessarily has to be a human. And I know Anthropic has touched on this a little bit in some of their you know, recent papers um, over the past year, which is that why can't it be another LLM? or a pipeline of LLMs that can help with that feedback. Um, I think manual labeling is very tedious, especially for our target user, which is a software engineer. Um, and I don't think people should necessarily have to do all that if zero shot uh, large language models are actually doing quite well. Um, so using a large language model prompt engineering, it's actually doing quite well, well enough to be able to actually transform data. Yeah, that, that's... that's um... Really interesting. You anticipated my my next question, which is that the the what what I know, and I'm you know, maybe wrong, but about um, RLHF in the context of OpenAI or others yeah. uh, providers is largely it's like it's 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 an outsourced operation in like some kind of uh, you know overseas right. like places where uh, people will spend hours and hours uh, just yeah. uh, back to the to the model. So I, I was wondering what that meant in the context of an enterprise and because it almost feels like um, so there's a human aspect, but there's like kind of like the UI UX aspect of this. Like, are we all expected as enterprise users or business users to be like sitting down in front of the model and keep giving it a thumbs up or thumbs down? Um, so, but but it, it sounds like uh, that, that could be the case, but like most importantly, just to play it back, uh, the, the future is um, actual models doing this for uh, on on replacing humans for this. Yes, uh, it is actually. Um, I think there are models, but then where humans come in isn't this weird outsourced task force in the Philippines um, doing labeling. It's actually just your users using your product, and so there's ways to bake this into a product, a user experience that. I think it's actually quite standard. Um, when I think of a product like Amplitude, for example, it's able to look at, you know, again, very just standard software engineering, standard products, be able to see how users are engaging with a product and be able to 
um, segment those users and also understand like all the clicks that are going in into um, what a user is doing. And then you're able to do analysis on, hey, this these are users that successfully went down this funnel, et cetera. And I think the same thing can apply here. The absolute same thing can apply here. Um, of course, I think people are a little bit, you know, worried with language models. They don't even grasp it. But I think that's the future. The future is analyzing, hey, based on in the same vein, based on how users are interacting with this product, maybe it's, you know, editing something it generated, maybe it's, you know, replacing it, maybe it's accepting it and like sending that email, for example, if it generated an email, those are all user engagements that can then be fed in via RLHF, mm -hmm. right? So that is, that's my view of it. It's not going to be this uh, I hope not at least sombering view of uh, outsourced um, uh, labor for this, which um, based on my experience for, you know, generic tasks, that's actually doable. But for, um, for very expert tasks, that's actually very, very difficult. Um, and maybe just to give an anecdote, uh, during my PhD at Stanford, um, when I was working on various different AI models, um, I worked on a AI pathology project where we had to detect basically a bacteria that indicated stomach cancer inside of um, different, you know, pathology slides, uh, you know, um, biopsies. And we couldn't get labels from uh, our board certified pathologists at Stanford because they're very, their time is very valuable. Um, they were very generous with their time, but I was like, maybe you should go save some people um, and I will learn. I And I did, actually. I spent all my time learning and doing flashcards with Anki flashcards and learning what H. pylori looked like, this bacteria looked like, and segmenting it on slides and iterating over and over and over again. And that was both valuable, not just because, you know, PhD students' time uh is essentially an indentured servitude time. No, I'm kidding. Um, but essentially, <laughs> no. Um, but essentially, uh, also because I was training the uh, the the AI system, I was training the models. So I actually understood, you know, how to iterate on what data labeling looked like. That dramatically influenced how the model would behave. And when we got the board certified pathologist to do it. They, you know, it we, it turned into a model that was actually overconfident because they weren't they weren't sure like oh was I supposed to write uncertain over here or I just marked everything you know so um, it actually helped that I knew and by the end of it um, according to them I was actually better than their residents uh, the pathology residents and I got the same agreement rate as two board certified pathologists so like it, it got to that level but that is not something we tried outsourcing actually to like scale AI, et cetera. It, it, none of that worked. Um, it had to basically be me. Um, so, so my belief is that the people building and the people understanding the products will be able to either through a product kind of like amplitude before large language models or something like that, will be able to extract those insights and be able to bake them in um, and, and, and further improve the models. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And do, do you think there is a, uh like a clear path to basically solving the, you know, hallucination problem that like everybody is thinking about. Like, so between RAG and uh, retrieval augmented fine tuning, and then uh, what should we call it? Model assisted RLHF. Um, mm. you, do you think that you go like into the, you know, 99% correct kind of, uh, kind of uh, model performance or what, what do you think this yeah. is going? I think we can get to that performance today, but it's based on how you scope out the problem. So mm -hmm. if it's a very narrow scope, of course you can get 
that. Um, now, the more and more broaden the scope, the reason why ChatGPT is hard to put guardrails on is because um, they're trying to go after every possible use case, right? So that's that's actually quite difficult. Um, that's very general and it's hard to predict. So as a result, it's really hard to put together an evaluation set before you see what users actually use it for, for creative tasks. And I actually think it's a great thing almost that we don't even know what people will use it for. Um, I think for a more scoped project um, that we're seeing with our customers and enterprises is, you know, when it's domain specific, uh, experts do actually understand some of the parameters around it. So I think some of the things to reduce hallucination with fine tuning is, is actually drawing these boundaries for the model, these guardrails essentially for when it should talk about a topic and not talk, talk about a topic. Um, for example, you know, we have demos out there that show a fine-tuned model that has these boundaries on it, and it only talks about Lamini. Like, it won't talk about any other topic. It would, it, and it's the same thing that makes it makes these models say, as a large language model, I can't, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it's because we can scope it out just to Lamini. And so that makes it actually quite easy to draw those boundaries versus everything, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, Very interesting. So you, you mentioned as well, as we were describing the product, um, you know, grabbing models of um, Hugging Face um, and Llama 2 as, a, as an example. So this is, um, uh, you know, a, a discussion around uh, smaller models and open source models versus commercial, like the very large uh, models. Uh, I mean, it, it, it sounds uh, without... Uh, uh, you know, my words, not not yours, uh, but that you you very much um, in the camp of like smaller models and open source for discrete use cases. Is that a is that fair? I think it depends on how you define small. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, we can train up to a hundred billion parameters. Um, okay. So that's I think sometimes in the large range now. Um, and uh, what we, wh I mean, but what we encourage is is um, actually starting with some of the larger models that are just, you know, start at a better checkpoint and then moving smaller to optimize for efficiency. Um, and so what that usually means, a common path is not like your own custom 100 billion parameter model, which of course, you know, happy to take that in, is starting off with Llama 270 billion and starting from there. Um, and of course, our, our customers are, you know, playing with all the different Llama series. And I think to determine also other, other constraints are around compute. So how much you want to be spending on compute also matters. Um, and then how much data you have. Uh, so the amount of data that you have significantly um, influences which model you should choose. Uh, because if you don't have a lot of data, um, sometimes that might mean, you know, a smaller model can be better to like fully utilize all of that if you're doing pretty heavy um, training on it. And I would call that like the domain adaptation training, like the very heavy training on it. But if you're doing something very lightweight on top of something, then actually starting with a bigger model where you want it to have some of those generic use cases is better. So it really depends on um, what data you have and what use case you have. And I think the industry is starting to learn what that is, um, is, is my sense. As I was prepping for this, um, I also read about um, your PEFT uh, framework. I don't know if that's the right term framework, uh, but PEFT, which stands for parameter efficient fine tuning. Uh, and then with the concept of model switching. So what, what, what does that mean? 
Yes, what does model switching mean? So let's say you have a single server, like a single node with eight GPUs or something like that, or you just have, let's say a single GPU, let's make this super easy. Um, and you have a model that can run on that server, right? You, on that GPU. Um, great. What if you have, you know, let's say you have a thousand different customers and you fine tuned a model for every single one of those customers, okay? You would need a thousand GPUs to serve each of them on, and that's like doing it the normal way. You would need a thousand GPUs. That is really expensive. <laughs> um, and also they're not super available right now, unless you want to go the AMD route with us. Um, so that is not something we recommend necessarily to uh, scale it out to a thousand um, GPUs per customer. Um, so what can you do? What does model switching mean? Um, if you wanted to just use one GPU and switch across those 1,000 customers, so let's say 1,000 customers are hitting uh, their models and you're just switching it on the GPUs, you're changing which models loaded up on the GPU, um, uh, the estimate is about you know three months of switching time, just pure sheer switching time. It would take three months to serve all thousand customers, and I don't think that's quite real time um, inference uh, from my vantage point. You ask a model something three months later, it comes back, it better be right. By the way, um, so that's that's what that is. And then so with the technology that we've used with parameter efficient fine tuning um, and just like efficiency, different efficiency methods that time to switch across a thousand models is three milliseconds is yeah so like a very very big difference that's a drastic difference which you sudden it suddenly means you don't need those a thousand gpus you just need that one right um and that becomes a dramatic dramatic shift in how you even think about your product or how, how you even scale out compute like when we talk to customers this completely changes how they even think about fine tuning and and how adapting models to every single one of their users, whether that be a thousand that we just talked about, 10,000, a million, 10 million. And it just becomes a very different um, type of uh, type of thinking, essentially. Hmm. Okay, fascinating. And, and you mentioned uh, agents um, as well. So first of all, um, maybe let's start with a definition, and then what, what, what is the reality uh, in the enterprise of, of agents and chains? And um, you know, obviously, it's a topic that a lot of people have been excited about. But I'm wondering what's um, you know how that manifests in reality uh, so far. Yeah, so that is one of our common use cases. Um, so what customers will do is build out essentially these agents, um, which call out either different language models or the same model. Um, also call out different tools and APIs that they might have internally. Um, and one of those tools could be go call a person <laughs> um, for at the end of, you know, the usual customer service uh, route. Um, so these agents are essentially, you know, I would say there are a couple different components. One is um, kind of a, a routing ability. So being able to route to those different APIs. And that's um, the language model's ability to be able to plan and execute a task. So plan, um, planning is actually something that is, uh, you know, in the wheelhouse of large language models. This is, a, you know, a an ability that has emerged from these large language models that have been um, not as great before, I would say. 
Um, so this has influenced not just these agents, but also things like robotics today. And it's very exciting that they can plan. So like planning like a five-step process, for example, to be able to hit, you know, API one, API two. Um, if, you know, all that fails at the third step, call a human, you know, that that's like the planning stage. So it's able to then hit those APIs and some of those APIs might be itself uh, to ask a question, uh, return some kind of value and be able to then go on to the next step. Um, so I think that's a very general framework that people are using today um, and being able to build out to many different use cases. Um, I think some of the common ones are like user onboarding um, or, you know, you know, reminders, customer service, of course. Um, but as you can imagine, these can get pretty specific to certain domains. Um, and for those domains, customers are collecting a lot of data from them as they deploy these models and collect, you know, or already have data. Um, and then that that is used to then train the model to be more consistent, to be better at planning for their specific use case, to hit like the targets that they want it to hit, um, and to be able to basically return a better result and continually improve it over time. The 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 model to kind of API uh, sort of action seems reasonably straightforward. Is there is there is there a difference when you do like model to model to model kind of kind of kind of chains? Uh, is there like a, are there like different levels of complexity? Uh, I would say that every model call in a chain results in because these models are not 100% does result in some form of error. So error does compound. Um, it also results in latency uh, mm. for every model call. Uh, so I, I would say that those are considerations to take in when doing a massive change of chain of large language models. Um, and the ways to reduce it are uh, you take the input of the first thing into the chain, you take the output of the last thing, and you fine tune only one model to do the whole thing, for example. And so that's a common kind of path as well. Um, yeah, so I that's that's kind of how I would approach that. But first, I would prototype it, and it's okay. It's multiple chains long, totally okay. You're getting the prototype up. You want a general sense of what's going on, and then you're like, okay, now we're ready for production. We want to optimize this. Um, we want this to improve over time. Uh, let's go down that route. Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe a quick word on the, on that uh, exciting partnership with um, with AMD. You alluded to it uh, up front, but that that's uh, actually a, a a product, I'm like a package. I think you call it the superstation. Is that yes. is that, is that correct? <laughs> yes, um, our LLM superstation with AMD. So, yes, our secrets out. Uh, we've actually, um, in terms of our hosted service, the Lamini hosted service over the past year has been running on AMD uh, GPUs only. We haven't been running on NVIDIA chips. Um, of course, for our customers, uh, we have. Um, you know, our customers, when they're in their VPCs, we run the Lamini software package on top of their NVIDIA GPUs, um, almost exclusively for that. Um, and some of our customers now have both because they have now purchased uh, essentially this um, uh, these LM superstations that include, you know, Lamini pre-installed on them with um, AMD compute. Um, and the reason for this is because of the compute shortage. I think without the compute shortage, this would it would not be exactly um, uh, a thing we, we necessarily be doing very explicitly. Uh, but with a compute shortage, needing GPUs that are powerful enough to be able to run some of these models, you know, Llama 70 billion, but even Llama 13 billion and be able to fine tune it, is is you know it's compute intensive so you need that compute um and as a result to unblock a lot of our customers who can't get them on a tier one cloud and by the way that includes um 
Fortune 500 and very large enterprises who can't do that. Um, so, you know, we've offered this as one solution to doing that. And we offer it in two ways. You know, of course, we recommend our hosted solution all the time, which is running it um, and hosted in our data center. Um, but we also have, uh, you know, we also have an on-premise solution. Essentially, we would ship the box to you um, and your DevOps team could handle it. And we do have customers doing that as well. Great. And and part of the realization was that um, AMD Instinct uh, accelerators are as powerful as NVIDIA CUDA. Is that uh, was that the analysis? Yes. So uh, maybe a bit of background on that. It it does extend a bit beyond. Um, a simple realization. It's been in the works for multiple years before the company even started. <laughs> uh, so my co-founder, Greg Diamas, um, was one of the original CUDA architects at NVIDIA in 2008 um, and has built out and shipped very large language models in production to over a billion users, for example, in the Baidu search engine. Um, one of the earliest you know, examples of that, um, his team has now built out all the major foundation models, including GPT-3, 4, Claude, uh, Llama, Llama 2, et cetera. So like very big team there. He founded MLPerf, um, ML Commons, basically the standard for machine learning performance in the industry um, to make these models very efficient, both for training and inference. Uh, so with that expertise <laughs> for many years and with the relationships, deep relationships with AMD, we were able to actually um, get, this, uh, get this working. Uh, and this is with the foresight of something called scaling laws that Greg co-invented um, uh, several years ago, about a decade ago. Yeah, what, what, what is that? I read about this a little bit. Oh, I saw it uh, come up as I was reading. What, what are the LLM scaling laws? What does it mean? It's a crazy thing. It's actually a simple formula, essentially, for intelligence. Um, so what it's saying is that with more compute and data, linearly, the model will improve. Um, and... That's almost a very crazy thing to to realize and to to see in these models. Um, so that's what it's saying. So he knew from the onset, from that moment, and everyone on that team clearly knew because they built out now the big foundation models. Is compute matters a lot and data matters a lot, right? So um, public data has gotten us very far with all these great models today. They're amazing. I believe that the next frontier is enterprise data, and so that's why we're building this company as well. Um, and you know, compute matters a ton, and that's why we engaged with AMD before even you know ChatGPT came out, um, because and it's like very long process um, of working together and getting this to work. Um, but it's been very fruitful, and I'm very very excited because we have reached software parity um, with essentially uh, CUDA, and so what that means is a huge amount of AMD GPUs are now available uh, for for use by our customers um basic and what that means for them is large language models are unlocked for them amazing okay speaking of customers um and switching maybe like away from the product into the sort of the go-to market uh yeah. what what are what are you seeing and learning uh, you know i was thinking uh through this conversation i mean like obviously your uh just at the very edge of like this um, world and just building some amazing stuff. Uh, I just put, put myself in the shoes of a customer uh, in just like the yeah. level of precision and sophistication and all the things. Um, obviously, it's exciting, but maybe daunting. Like, do, do you find you, yourself uh, sort of doing a lot of hand holding 
uh, in, uh, like how, how does that, how does that uh, what, I guess, what is your experience to date in interacting with customers in the real world? Yeah, I, I would say um, I'm actually impressed with the rate of learning that customers have had over the past year. We started before ChatGPT and it was very preliminary, you know, like customers didn't even know the word, obviously generative AI was not a thing. Large language models wasn't even a thing. So just a very different ecosystem. That was obviously a huge amount of knowledge transfer that we would have to do for a customer. Um, and it also narrowed who our customer, initial customers could be. Uh, today, customers are learning very fast um, and we see customers uh, at varying levels of the maturity curve, but they are they are learning very fast. So they'll come back to us after a month or something and be like, we're ready. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, I, I'm seeing that as really fast. And of course, I've been trying to contribute to that as well through the courses, like fine tuning LLMs, which now has reached many customers who have now tried all those techniques and best practices. And I'm really happy about that. Oh, it's, a, it's a scalable way of doing it. Um, but of course we do have change management as a thing. Uh, it is still real, realistically a thing um, at different levels of a company. Um, and realistically having, um, you know, experience and also um, been around, you know, our team has been around a lot of these deployments in the past. It's that it it isn't easy. You know, like, you know, there's there's buy in that needs to happen at every level. And so I think that that's a piece of it. But of course, that's almost a piece of every enterprise sale. Yeah. Any emerging use case or, uh, you know, use cases that seem to be popular or things that are turning out to be much harder than expected? Any any learnings around use cases? Yeah. So in terms of use cases, I think they're actually very obvious ones um, and they should be very obvious. It's essentially, I want ChatGPT on my data. So chatting over some kind of documents. Um, so that's very, very common. Again, the agent one, operator one is very, very common as well. What's not working is um, getting, you know, uh, compute to scale out. Of course, we're unblocking that um, and also encouraging customers to deploy much faster. Uh, so I think uh, something that, you know, this is, it's a very hard thing to be able to deploy these models quickly because it's a new piece of technology. But I will say all of the customers who do deploy fast uh, essentially will reap the benefits of it because even if you launch something that's embarrassing at first, like GitHub Copilot was kind of embarrassing at first. I think there was a lot of, you know, <laughs> and people didn't say necessarily positive things, but it improves over time. That's the whole point of it. It improves your usage, it improves your data. And so that's that's what deploying faster means. Um, and I know it can be very challenging for, for folks to deploy something that feels like it's a probabilistic system when they're used to deploying deterministic systems. Uh, cool. Awesome. Well, that that's, feels like a wonderful place to uh, live it. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, uh, let's do this again. All right. Well, that, that feels like a wonderful place to live it. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed this conversation. Um, where can people find you uh, online and the courses that you mentioned? And how do they learn more about you and the company? Oh, of course. Um, so you can find me on a few different platforms, Twitter, LinkedIn are my most common ones. Um, you can also reach out to me over email, Sharon at Lamini.ai. Um, uh, in terms of the company, it's Lamini.ai. Lamini.com will also reroute you there. Um, uh, and in terms of the courses, they're on Coursera. So they, they're free or should be free, I hope. Um, and they're free uh, to anyone who wants to just learn about them and play with the technology. Um, you know, it's Lamini open core there. So you can actually hit our servers, hit AMD servers, essentially, um, as you run through it. 
All right. Terrific. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thank you so much, Matt. Really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us for the MAD podcast. We're back here every Wednesday with new conversations with leaders in the machine learning, AI, and data space. And if you like this show, you can also find the video recording of not only this episode, but many, many more over on the Data Driven NYC YouTube channel. Thanks again and catch you next week.